Thanks to Slack for supporting The Motley Fool. Slack is a collaboration hub for work that makes sure the right people in your team are always in the loop and key information is always at their fingertips. Learn more at slack.com. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen. It's Tuesday, August 14th. My guest today is Motley Fool contributor Dan Klein, who's connecting with us via Skype. I have to say, Dan... I've been spoiled by your frequent visits to HQ. <laughs> it, it feels weird not having you in the studio with me. Well, I would have been there, except it's the first week of school. And frankly, I would have been there because last time I was there, you paid for dinner and we went for Korean barbecue. It's absolutely <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> um, uh, next time. Yeah, so the first week, I imagine, is always kind of rough for you as a dad. Yes. Uh, yesterday, my son took a bus to the wrong high school and didn't figure it out for two hours. Oof. And today, today the bus didn't come at all. <laughs> so. Well, I hope that you guys have a little bit better luck for the rest of the week. Yeah, it's a, it's a joy. Um, our topic of discussion for today uh, is definitely influenced by your experience uh, from this past summer. And Last time you were on Industry Focused, you mentioned making trip after trip to the major theme parks in your neck of the woods down in Florida to keep your son entertained for the summer. Uh, Did you have a good time? I did. I believe I personally am up to 25 days spent in either a Disney park, a Universal park, uh, or a SeaWorld park. Okay. So even with (laughs) the long lines, the heat in Florida... Yeah, you know, I always wonder if something like that grows old. Even something as fun as roller coasters, does that kind of grow stale? I know you're not a roller coaster guy, but you get the I'm idea. I'm not, but so if you come down and visit, you're here for two days, and there's a pressure to get everything in. If I go to Universal with my son, usually I get up early, I work for four or five hours, we go to the park, we do a ride or two, we have some lunch, we do a show, a couple more rides. If the line is really long on something, maybe we'll do single rider, maybe we just skip it. As a local... And we'll come back to this when we talk about annual passes. Mm-hmm. There's just not that same vacation pressure. So it really makes it, in my opinion, I never enjoyed theme parks when it was a vacation. Now that it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, we're going to Epcot for lunch and maybe we'll ride Mission Space. It's very different and a lot more enjoyable. Yep. Yep. All right. So listeners, uh, that's a very relevant lead in to our main topic for the show. Um, Dan and I are going to look at three companies from the amusement park industry. Those are SeaWorld. Cedar Fair, and Six Flags. And though we've mentioned some of these companies in the past, this is the first time that we're going to take a closer look at the industry beyond the Parks and Resorts division at Walt Disney, really. Um, That division generated $18.5 billion of revenue last year. So that's more than four times the revenue of SeaWorld, uh, Cedar Fair, and Six Flags combined. So it's a good reminder of the massive shadow that Disney tends to cast over the industries it plays in. But you know, these are kind of the peer plays, and they're really... uh, going through some interesting changes and adjustments, especially at SeaWorld and Six Flags, in my opinion. So we'll look at SeaWorld first. Tickers SEAS, um, SeaWorld Entertainment Shoulders, have uh, really had to buckle down in the past few years to stomach some of the volatility with this business. Uh, shares plummeted in 2014 because of growing controversy regarding the main attraction at SeaWorld theme parks, their whales and other animals. But year to date, the stock has rallied about 80%. A decent portion of that gain following the company's second quarter earnings report from last week which we'll dig into more in a few minutes. A brief 
really brief overview for SeaWorld. Um, company currently operates 12 parks in the U.S. across several well-known banners, including its namesake SeaWorld, Busch Gardens, Sesame Place, and a few others. In 2017, almost 20, 21 million people visited the parks. Its top line last year came out to $1.26 billion, which was down 6% year-over-year, making it the fourth consecutive year of revenue declines. Um, breaking down the top line, SeaWorld and its peers make money generally, uh, not only selling tickets for admission to their properties, but also, of course, selling food, beverages, other merchandise in the parks. So, between those two categories, for SeaWorld specifically, tickets made up about 60% of the top line, concessions and merchandise making up the remaining 40%. So, Dan, SeaWorld's kind of the underdog here for the three companies, given its uh, its kind of turnaround recently. Can you talk about some of the evolution the company has undergone yeah, recently? So let, let me jump in with one sort of, I don't want to say misconception, but the Blackfish scandal absolutely hurt SeaWorld from a marketing, public relations, attendance point of view. But it wasn't the only reason it sort of went on a steady decline. It's really Harry Potter at Universal that that should get some of the blame for this. Because there used to be sort of Disney you went for four or five days, and then you either did Universal or SeaWorld for a day or two. They were kind of your number two park. Now, obviously, that doesn't affect the whole company. That's just the flagship here. But you sort of had this major change in the Florida market where SeaWorld became a clear also-ran because Universal invested so much and stepped up its game. So it really changed the thinking for the whole company for SeaWorld. You know, in addition to having to sort of answer a lot of questions on how it treats its animals. And when you go to SeaWorld, I would say about 60% of the messaging is to remind you that these animals have a better life than you do. It is over <laughs> the top. You know, they, they, they used to talk about how wonderful, you know, the shows were. Now it's all about the work they do to save. And they show you videos of them releasing things. And I don't know, orcas having, you know, steak dinners, like just whatever you could possibly do to counteract that image. So yeah, they fought a lot of bad publicity and they were sort of building in the wrong direction and they've had to pivot the, the sea world parks have become more thrill ride parks in addition to animals. So they used to be very focused on shows and animals, and they still have all that, but they've tacked on a lot of roller coasters to, to make those parks uh, a little more appealing to more people. Mm-hmm. There's also been a leadership transition um, for SeaWorld that has come up in February. Uh, makes it makes an interesting situation uh, for the company as well, because for three plus years, we had CEO Joel Manby. He had to manage a lot of the backlash and helped rebuild uh, the company's poor public image. Um, the turnaround was slow, slow going for several years. Um, he actually announced his departure from SeaWorld um, back in February with the announcement. And... Then you have the results from this past week, which were very encouraging. Uh, attendance was up 4.8% to 6.4 million guests for the quarter. Re- revenue was up 4.9% year over year to $392 million. And per capita in-park spending gains, so um, basically the spending per customer, uh, offset some of the declines that they saw in the actual admission pricing. So now that the results are turning around, uh, the company's still having to look, though, for someone to take the reins. Um, SeaWorld is in a position where they need someone who can follow through on the recovery process, but also start looking out a little further, shifting gears, uh, thinking about longer-term growth. So, high-level um, I've heard management talk a lot about changes to SeaWorld's marketing strategy, uh, which you've mentioned, to their ticket and pricing strategy, plus 
some of the new ride openings um, as the big drivers of their attendance growth. And on that third front, uh, interim CEO John Riley he said in June, we have a revamped capital strategy that we believe will also help it drive attendance growth with the goal of offering a new ride, attraction, show, or event in every park every year. I'm curious, Stan, have you tried any of these new park uh, uh, attractions, rides, whatever it is? So you know I'm a Frady cat. <laughs> I, I will do most rides that aren't roller coasters, but the new ride at Aquatica is called Ray Rush. Uh, and, and I actually did it, and it's super-duper terrifying. Uh, it is a water, you're in a raft with uh, two, three, four other people. I forget what the limit is. Uh, there's a bit of a drop, and then you go into sort of a bowl thing, and you slide up and down. It is not something I would typically do, but I would say it's absolutely on par with Misadventure Falls, which is the the new addition at the Disney Typhoon Lagoon. That you know, maybe the Disney one is a little bit more theming, but the actual ride is right on par. And that's where SeaWorld has been very smart. They're adding rides that where they can compete. They're, some of their rides are subpar. Their, their whole penguin experience. The penguins are awesome. The actual ride feels regional. It feels very small compared to a Disney attraction. But in roller coasters and water slides, they can offer world-class attractions, and that's what they've been doing. Infinity Falls, which is their new ride at SeaWorld, which has unfortunately missed the summer season in terms of an opening, looks to be an absolutely tremendous flume-style water slide with the biggest drop. I am not going anywhere near it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so they've gotten very smart. They've also stepped up their game in terms of uh, offering more shows, more more nighttime activities, more one-day events. There's a thrill ride event coming up and really giving pass holders reasons to come back. Um, I went back this weekend because they offered a half-off at Aquatica deal. And I had family in the area that didn't have an active pass to any water park. So for half the price of a regular ticket, they both got to come and we spent the day at the water park. Um, so the new CEO is going to need to be able to do two things. You absolutely have to manage capital expenditures because you cannot put in a new top tier roller coaster at every park. Some of them have to be lower price shows or, or smaller additions. Um, and then you need someone who's really a master marketer because the challenge is there's two people you're trying to reach. The one-day visitor who's going to buy a full-price ticket and spend a bunch of money because they're not coming back all year. And the person who buys an annual pass that's going to come a lot and can eat and drink and buy hats and who knows what many times a year. Yep. The, you've brought up uh, pass holders a few times, and I want to touch on season pass activity because that came up as a bright spot. Um recently for the company's results. Um, Riley, he mentioned on the earnings call that season pass revenue growth uh, was in the double digits thanks to some better features that um, are given to pass holders and some of the pricing for those customers as well. A um, few final points before we move on. Uh, management also shared 2020 targets and gu- guidance recently as part of its latest earnings release. So in 2017, SeaWorld reported about $300 million of adjusted EBITDA. Um, by 2020, management hopes to grow that figure to 475 to $500 million. So the components of that growth are in attendance, revenue per capita, and cost savings. So first, SeaWorld wants to grow that annual attendance about 1% while also recapturing part of the 3.6 million customers that it lost since its peak attendance in, 20, in 2012. And then with per capita spending, uh, the increase, well, uh, they're targeting that to come partially from ticket pricing and then also some of those stronger in-park attractions and food offerings that you've mentioned. And finally, uh, management is looking
looking for $50 million of cost savings to flow down to the adjusted EBITDA line. That's on top of $40 million of costs already cut since 2016. So, you mentioned capital expenditures to open you know, the new rides, the new events, the attractions. Uh, CEO wants that the CEO wants at every park each year. Um, annual capex estimated at 150 million dollars for the next three years. Um, any final the, thoughts, Dan? Before we move on, uh, in the terms cost of- savings scares me. Um, so the one thing you notice at SeaWorld, well, well, or Aquatica, they're both lovely parks, but the line to get food is often very long. The drink service, uh, you buy the all-you-can-drink cup, it doesn't have the chip reader the way the higher-end theme parks do. You have to wait in line. So it scares me that they're pursuing cost cuts at a time where I think they could increase visits by actually doubling down on a, call it a more Disney-like customer service experience. Okay. Uh, I'll just... And with this note, again, SeaWorld has put up huge gains in 2018, one of the strongest performers in the broad market. Um, the investments in the parks, they do need a steady guiding hand uh, that we've discussed. So keep an eye out for the new CEO announcement. Um, next up, we're going to turn our attention to Cedar Fair and Six Flags, the, the peers in this space. Thanks to Slack for supporting The Motley Fool and Industry Focus. Slack is a collaboration hub for work, whatever work it is that you do. With Slack, the right people in your team are kept in the loop, and the information they need is always at their fingertips because Slack connects all the tools and services you need in one place. Slack is a huge part of everyone's workday here at Full HQ, whether we're brainstorming ideas for the podcast, getting business updates from across the company, or just reaching out to someone for lunch or a coffee break. Every day you'll hear a fool say, just Slack me. It's that easy and convenient. Teamwork on Slack happens in channels, letting you organize conversations and information around projects, offices, or teams. That means no more digging through your inbox for that one email you needed, and no more switching back and forth between tabs and platforms to stay up to speed. You can tailor Slack to your work with more than 1,000 apps. And because everything you need to work is in one place, it's faster and easier to get things done. Slack, where work happens. Learn more at slack.com. That's S-L-A-C-K dot com. So Cedar Fair is up next, ticker F-U-N. That's awesome. Uh, this is one is unique among the three companies because Cedar Fair is an MLP, or Master Limited Partnership. Um, Fool.com offers a detailed overview of MLPs and how they work. But in short, these are publicly traded partnerships that operate in specific industries like oil and gas and real estate. And an MLP pays out distributions to its unit holders. That's the MLP equivalent of dividends and stockholders. And there are some tax advantages to, to this uh, organizational structure. So for Cedar Fair, the company has a distribution yield of 6.7%, pretty attractive to any income-focused investor. And size-wise, the company is pretty similar to SeaWorld and to Six Flags, for that matter, about $1.3 billion of revenue for the uh, trailing 12 months. Uh, Dan, can you walk us through the business, some of Cedar Fair's properties and uh, recent updates? So, Cedar Fair owns you know, very traditional amusement parks. You know, uh, Knott's Berry Farm, the various uh, ones with the Cedar Fair name. You know, they're your mix of roller coasters, kids' rides, your classic merry-go-rounds. And as a company, they've struggled. Their attendance was down slightly, although spending per person was up a little bit. And they illustrate sort of what a major problem is for this industry, is seasonality. It was a rainy July. The summer wasn't, uh, you know, it was too hot. There were, there were some different issues. And Cedar Fair Parks, almost all of them are not open full year. So through the first six months of the year, they're actually down. And while they haven't changed their guidance for the full year, they will in September, there's almost no way to catch up because a lot of their parks close. So this just sort of shows you that 
in this business, unless you're in a market like Florida that has a year-round tourist base, you have a setup where if you lose three weeks due to hurricanes or bad weather or rain or whatever or early snow, you are not going to be able to catch up. And that's kind of what's happening to Cedar Fair this year. Yep. Looking at the company's second quarter results, um, you'd notice themes that uh, tend to stretch across industry. So, uh, there was a weather impacts that you mentioned. Um, there's also a shift in terms of the Easter holiday, which affected uh, kind of the distribution of revenue between the first and second quarters. Also, rising labor costs, which is something we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, Revenue was down 3% year-over-year in the quarter. Attendance specifically fell 5%. And this was the third or fourth consecutive year of kind of poor weather for the opening months of the summer season. And analysts really uh, pressed management during the earnings call to kind of gauge how the company will adapt if this less-than-ideal weather becomes an ongoing problem, essentially. And related to that, uh, Cedar Fair also spoke to the importance of season pass customers, which ultimately served to smooth out the volatility from these stretches of bad weather. Uh, CEO Richard Zimmerman, he said that uh, the season pass channel makes up about 50% of park attendance. Um, and another interesting detail from that customer contingent, uh, which you talked about in terms of kind of the local contingent, is most season pass holders live within 30 to 45 minutes of the park. You're kind of a good example of that, Dan, in terms of your Central Florida parks, right? Uh, well, I mean, my main home is about two and a half hours away. But yeah, we do have a place that's you know, between 20 and 45 minutes, depending which park you're going to. And let me explain how this works a little bit, because I, I think it's important. If you're visiting and it rains, they don't operate most rides. A roller coaster is almost always, even if there's lightning within like 10 miles, they shut them down. Water-based rides have to shut down. So Disney and Universal can weather that because they have tons of shows and high capacity. SeaWorld, to an extent, you know, has covered venues that can run some of its shows. At the Cedar Fair Parks, while there certainly are some non-ride things to do, if it rains, you're, you're a park with very little capacity. So if I'm a local, I might just go home. I have a pass, I'll come back. If I'm a tourist, I either don't go that day and never sign up, and that's just revenue you completely lost, or I bought a ticket, but I don't stay all day. So you don't get lunch and a beer and a giant pretzel or whatever it is I'm going to spend money on later in the day. So having those annual passes is so important for the company because they can do things. You know, the way Starbucks emails you and says, hey, it's three o'clock, you want a half price frappuccino? Cedar Fair can say, hey, uh, the weather is nice now. Do you want, uh, you want a free beer to come to the park on Wednesday? SeaWorld actually sort of does that. Uh, so having that base that you can market to and entice them to come during slow times is of absolute importance across the entire theme park industry. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, shed a little bit more detail on that because um, management talks about how uh, its guests will or their guests will adjust and change their visitation to fit their schedules because of things like that. Um, they'll make a shorter afternoon or evening visit, for example, inst instead of spending a full 10-hour day at the park, depending on what works best. It's a little harder to get away um, for a full Saturday, for example, at a park in terms of their visits. Um, yeah, and th there's also an ability to, c to control guest flow. Um, I mentioned I'm a SeaWorld pass holder, and SeaWorld every month does different promotions. Sometimes it's cheap tickets for friends and family. Sometimes it's a free meal. Sometimes it's, it's get to ride a new ride before other people, whatever it is. 
all of the different park companies can do that. So if Cedar Fair says, okay, sales are slow in Cincinnati, which they were in the, the past six months, they might be able to take people who are members at a park that's two hours away and offer them 75% off the Cincinnati park. And then it's worth traveling to try the different roller coasters, sample the different food. And if you've traveled, you're probably going to spend the full day. So you'll spend a decent amount of money. So the, the stronger relationship you have, and I know as a pass holder, I do the math. Well, I've been to SeaWorld four times on my $200 pass. A regular one-day ticket is like 135 or something. So my earnout is – it varies a little bit. My earnout is already there. So every time I go, it gets cheaper and cheaper. That's kind of what they're pushing you to do. But of course, I reactivate my soda glass. I probably eat. Maybe I have a drink. You know, My son probably has you know a cookie or a thing of fries or something. So the money adds up even if you're not paying an admission. Yep, that pay that uh, goes to the in-park spending, which obviously a big part of the uh, revenue streams for these companies. So I'll just close in terms of broad note for Cedar Fair. Um, companies kind of in a holding pattern, um, given its generous distribution, um, investors will always want to track the company's free cash flow to see how sustainable um, the four percent annual distribution growth is for unit holders. Um, any other thoughts on Cedar Fair before we move on to our final company? Then, yeah, I think Cedar Fair largely has a, a branding issue. You know, they have lots of different theme park brands. They don't have sort of the overriding, oh, okay, like Cedar Fair is a corporate name. It's not the name that's on all the parks. So whether they should be rebranding as Knott's Berry Farm or, or, or Cedar Fair or whatever it is, it is a little bit harder to communicate the value of of passes when parks that are nearby maybe don't share the same branding. Um, you know, and They've also struggled. They've had a couple of roller coaster openings that did not go as well as planned. So once those get smoothed out, you could see sort of the the uptick of people who travel for those major new coasters. Okay, so that brings us to Six Flags ticker SIX. Uh, the company operates twenty parks across U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Not to mention licensing deals for parks in China, Dubai, and Saudi Arabia. Some of those being relatively recent revenue, again in line with competitors, uh, just over one point four billion dollars for the trailing twelve month period. Uh, when I think about an amusement park, or when I picture one, I definitely think Six Flags, having grown up about thir- half an hour away from Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey. And this is my rare opportunity to brag about New Jersey because that park <laughs> is still home of the tallest roller coaster in the world at 456 feet and also the second fastest. It's pretty. It's a pretty incredible experience going from zero to 120 miles per hour in less than four seconds. So highly recommend that if you're in the area, check out Great Adventure. Uh, the roller coaster is called King Daka. But um, for the company's performance, the, it also reported results recently. Uh, can you walk us through some of that and just recent initiatives that stood out to you? So, so this was absolutely stunning to me. You know, I I remember when Six Flags was was struggling and its its advertising wasn't connecting. But the company has actually had eight years and expects to have nine years of growth. Um, it it was a little bit tricky to look at its earnings for the last six months because overall. Uh, Sales are up and and uh, attendance is up, but th- they they bought rights to five parks, and when you take those five new parks in, uh, spending per customer actually was two percent down. So it's a little bit wonky that if you take those results out, uh, spending was up. So Six Flags has the most clear strategy in terms of you know what it is. I don't think there's too many Americans that have seen a Coke can or a, a, a 
a television commercial for Six Flags that don't understand this is a roller coaster based thrill park that also has maybe some kiddie rides and traditional fair elements, you know, your cotton candy, your funnel cake, that kind of stuff. Their strategy with their annual passes has been very, very smart because they use different pricing, different passes to get you from your park that's 30 minutes from your house to the park that's two hours away, maybe even to, to the, you know, the big parks, the, the ones that are a bit of a travel. So they've worked really hard at building that audience. And they started at a pretty low price point. I know in Connecticut, I could get a Six Flags annual pass, you know, if I watched for the deals, which were usually on Coke cans, which is why I mentioned that, uh, for $69, $79. So their goal is to get you in the door and then to get you spending money. Yeah, I, I absolutely remember the time when, as a kid, I was hunting for Coke cans, getting essentially a 50% off discount on entry for the one-day ticket sales. Um, but you mentioned uh, eight, nine years of consecutive strong results, and it really coincides with the how season passes have driven the attendance strategy at Six Flags starting in 2010, um, and that's evolving now even further as we look out beyond 2018. There's a great quote from CFO Marshall Barber. Um, he breaks down the company's thinking on its memberships versus season passes. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But he said, so the base membership is, say, around $8 a month. For an extra $2, you can get unlimited drinks. And then for an extra $3, you can get a front of the pass every time you visit and preferred parking. And then for an extra 6 you can get two front of the line passes, preferred parking, discounts on in-park or spending on in-park. And so what we found is that we are pretty confident we can get people into the membership program, and we have. We've been very pleased with that. We are very pleasantly surprised at how many people would move into those upper tiers. So at the highest tier, you're paying $230 a year versus $70 for a season pass. So we think that moving this movement to membership is really the next progression on how we sell tickets to our customers, and I think that will be as impactful as the season pass was. And season pass penetration for unique visitors is right now it's around forty percent, while the one day tickets sit at sixty percent. And with the ongoing membership, where in this case it's kind of like a Netflix style business model, where you buy into a certain tier for whatever perks that you want. Um, the big thing here is management mentions that the benefits of this membership style. Um, ticket strategy is you don't have to resell the season pass holders each year because the churn can be really bad with renewal rates as low as 25%. And then if you, given the uh, adoption that they've seen in terms of some of the higher price tiers uh, for these memberships, um, that's again, another boon in terms of uh, what they're seeing uh, in revenue per customer. Yeah, it becomes an auto pay. I mean, that's all of my passes. Uh, There's better terms for Florida residents, but all the theme parks down here offer the ability to either pay a deposit and then pay for 12 months. And when renewal time comes up, there's usually a deal. They might give you 20% off, 90 days free, whatever it is. And in general, it's such a relatively low amount per month. You know, even, even my Disney passes, my, my son and I, it's, you know, whatever it is, 40 something dollars a month for the two of us. It, it's not that big an expense 
that when you look at it, you're just not going to get rid of it because it becomes like a gym. Even if you haven't been to Six Flags in, in six months, mentally you remember how much fun you used to have there. So you promise yourself you're going to go again and it'll be worth it next year. And all those little add-ons that can now be controlled via web or app make it so much easier. You know, It used to be you had to wait in a line to get a bracelet for the all-day dining or the free drinks or the parking or whatever it was. Now it can all be done through your membership card, through the app, and it becomes just a really easy way to spend. I mean, I, I fall for the, you know, the, the, the $14.99 all you can drink cup every time and then feel like it's like a game of how much soda we can drink in a five or six hour visit. <laughs> not, not the most healthy thing there, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> My son got mad when I got a Powerade one, so we have to stick to soda. All right. So, uh, closing out, uh, in terms of the memberships, uh, what that ultimately amounts to, uh, management said that the lifetime value for its members is as high as three times that of its season pass holders. And the company pinned membership base at over $2 million during the last earnings call, so definitely something to track going forward. Um, and the last thing I'll mention for Six Flags is that there's been a flurry of licensing agreements uh, in places, in markets like China, Dubai, and Saudi Arabia that have been announced over the past couple of years. Um, and this is an interesting revenue stream for theme park companies that we haven't really gotten into as much yet. So for Six Flags, the company doesn't put in any capital to develop the park. Instead, uh, it initially gets fees for design and development. And then once the park opens, Six Flags also gets a percentage of revenue for use of its brand and then uh, the management services. So this is very similar to like a fast food franchise model. Um, so and I ahead. like this model because if you follow the theme park world as I do, there is probably an oversaturation point. There are China and Dubai and United Arab Emirates. There are all of these places that are building these massive areas that have, you know, 10, 12, 15, whatever it is, different theme parks. And some of them are working and some of them are not. So if you're Six Flags, you're giving them proven concepts. They don't have to develop a new roller coaster. They don't have to come up with a new ride queue or pass system or any of that. And there's absolutely no risk on your part. So if 75% of these parks work and 25% don't, it doesn't really hurt your brand. Okay. Um, I'll just add, in terms of the contribution that these licensed properties make for the company, uh, about 10 to $20 million of EBITDA annually with an 80% EBITDA margin. So really, again, uh, in terms of how it hits the financials, a uh, very attractive prospect for the company and an attractive growth opportunity uh, going uh, looking forward. So that brings us to the final part of our discussion for these theme parks. And I'm curious to hear what you think, Dan. Basically, of the th these three that we've discussed, who's your favorite? <laughs> Um, you know, I'm a little bit biased in both directions because I've enjoyed SeaWorld, but I've often I've also had a sort of lousy customer service experience. So when you break down the financials, I really think it's Six Flags that that had it's it's close, but Six Flags has sort of figured out the difference between the cheap getting a kid in the door and creating a feeling of membership with a higher level, which is much more the Disney Universal. When you when you get a Disney or Universal pass, you feel like you're joining like a secret family. Like there there is a lot of interaction and Facebook groups and that kind of stuff. I think Six Flags has taken its sort of traditional parks and built up some of that. They've also done a lot in the way of special events. So has SeaWorld and Cedar Fair as well, where you know, the, the Halloween Fright Fests and the, you know, uh, beer festivals or barbecue festivals or whatever else it is they're having to sort of increase that value. So by if I only had to pick one by a small amount, I'd say Six Flags, though, frankly, there aren't that many rides at Six Flags I'm willing to ride. OK, uh, something I'll just add. Um, 
I was really impressed for by the membership push, which, which we've already discussed for Six Flags. But something that um, you know, if you're looking, if you think, if you're not as confident in SeaWorld, just given it's in still in this ongoing kind of recovery situation, you're deciding between Cedar Fair and Six Flags. Keep in mind, Six Flags also pays a pretty Good dividend, 4.7% yield. Um, so, not that far off in terms of the distribution that you get from Cedar Fair. Uh, and given the overall strength, in terms of the overall strength of the two companies, I also am edged out with Six Flags. Any final thoughts, Dan, before we roll off? Yeah, there's one thing we didn't mention is that uh, so SeaWorld operates Sesame Place and they're adding a Sesame Place section to their Orlando park. And it hasn't gotten a lot of publicity because obviously we have Star Wars Galaxy Edge coming and some some very, very major Disney and Universal things. But when you look at the landscape, and this is obviously the theme park capital of, of the world, there's very little for little kids. So if you add Sesame Street attractions to a park that already has the, the dolphin shows and the whale shows and, and things that are family-friendly – you might tip some of the traffic away from Disney and Universal, which don't cater to little kids as much as you would think they would. So SeaWorld, you know, by they have an Elmo show now, but by building on that with some, some Sesame Street attractions, they might be able to sort of, you know, inexpensively become a bit of a bigger player again, at least in this market. Okay. Um it's been a fun discussion, kind of introduce these companies, get a first look at these peer play um, amusement park, theme park companies. We're definitely going to f- track them and follow them going forward. Um, thanks, Dan, for joining us. I think some field research is called for. Yeah. Fools, thank you for tuning in. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based on what you hear during the program. Fool on. Fool on.